All right. Yeah, I guess you get, there you go. Yep, okay. I guess it's time for me to start, so that's, that's excellent. Uh, in all seriousness, uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to Grace Church, Medina East Campus, like Colin said. It is an honor and a privilege uh, for us to be here together and to listen to God's word and really just to do that as a community and connect in those ways. It's such a treasure to be able to do that. And so uh, my name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here at the Medina East Campus, and I'm really excited to be here with you today because we actually today are launching into a brand new series that we are calling, as you can see on the graphics behind me, we are calling this series Broken Religion, Broken Religion. And so right off the bat, here is what we want to set out to do in this series. In Broken Religion, what we're going to be doing is we are going to be looking at uh, what is arguably Jesus's most famous teaching in all of scripture, the Sermon on the Mount. You can find that in Matthew chapters five through seven. And what we're gonna be doing in this series in particular is looking in, zooming in into like a block or a subsection of that sermon, a block of Jesus's teachings that is gonna be found in Matthew five, verses 17 through 48. Matthew five, verses 17 through 48. And so if you have been around the Medina East Campus for the last couple months, the idea of us being in a series and a set of conversations around the Sermon on the Mount should be like deja vu for you, shouldn't it? I mean, this should be really familiar by now. Because again, if you've been around, you know that the last two series that we have been in uh, have come directly, like our source material or the ground of what we've been talking about has been Jesus's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. So several months ago, we went through Matthew chapter five, verses one through 12, and we looked at Jesus's Beatitudes, which is a Latin word that means blessed or happy. And happy is what we called that series. And we examined what are the characteristics and the qualities of people who are going to inherit the kingdom of heaven, who are going to inherit and enjoy the kingdom that Jesus offers to those who would follow him? And then, as many of you know, last week we shut down another series that we called Salt and Light. And essentially, we looked at Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16, and we saw there that Jesus gives his followers a label. He brands those who follow him, and he brands them as salt and light. And so today, and in this series, today's going to be a little bit of an introduction to this broken religion. We are just going to continue as a community to walk through down this pathway of looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to, again, look in this series at Matthew 5, 17 through 48. We won't cover all of those verses. You can breathe a sigh of relief. We're not going to cover all those verses today. But what we are going to do is actually cover four verses, verses 17 through 20, that most scholars say it serves as an introduction or an introductory statement by Jesus to this next block of teaching that he's going to go through in the Sermon on the Mount. And so uh, what I'd like to ask you to do right away is if you brought your Bibles here with you this morning, or if you are, uh, have your Bible on your tablet or whatever device, if you could start making your way out now, I'm going to give you plenty of time to do it, to Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, so we can all get situated there. Uh, if you do not have a Bible uh, with you today, there are some Bibles under the seats in front of you. Uh, you can find those Bibles or in uh, Matthew 5, 17 through 20, in those Bibles on page 786, page 786. So as you make your way out there, I thought a good place to start our conversation or our introductory remarks on this series would be for us to do something that I think is really essential anytime we're approaching any topic or theme or subject matter or ideas that we're going to be covering in this series. I thought it'd be a good idea to uh, do something that is often overlooked, sadly, but I think is really essential to get us all on the same page. And that is to establish some definitions of some of the key words and ideas that we're going to be encountering in this series or throughout the series. Um, and I think, actually, for most of us, if we're honest, and this is true of me, when I say that we have to establish definitions, what I don't tend to do is go straight to the dictionary with some of these things. What I actually tend to do when I define these things is I define them by my own experiences, by my own assumptions, by my own biases, my own presuppositions. Especially, I think this is true when you come against or come across really tricky, like potentially volatile words that show up in the title like this, particularly this word right here, this word religion. Some of you, I say the word religion and you shudder, right? You're like, oh, great. Because we know, we know something. We know that there are two subjects that you do not talk about at the Thanksgiving dinner table with your family and friends, right? 
You do not talk about what? Politics, right? And apparently at the Manani East Campus, we are glutton for punishment because last October, we did a series all about politics. It's fantastic. We just, apparently we just love injuring ourselves. But so we talk about politics, but the other one is, say it with me, religion. You're not supposed to talk about religion at the dinner table. So I think it is going to be really incumbent on us to do the hard, but I think necessary process of starting by unearthing a lot of the default definitions that we carry with us with regard to this really pesky, tricky, sometimes filled with animosity word called religion. So here's what I want to do. I want to actually flip the script right off the bat, and I want to ask you a question. I want to pull the audience, pull the subject matter experts in the room as we undergo this challenging, challenging but I think necessary exercise. I'm going to ask you this question, and what I want you to do is I want you to really, like, considerately reflect on the question that I'm about to ask and how you, in particular, would answer the following question. From your heart, search your soul a little bit. How would you answer the following question? Imagine that the question is this. What is religion? What is religion? How do you, whether it's by your experiences or someone who taught you about these things that you really valued and respected and you adopted their, you adopted their opinions, what is religion to you? How do you define it? What would it mean for something to be religious or like of the stuff of religion? What makes religion for you in your mind what it is? So again, I'm going to give you a little space and time to like really reflect on that. And as I do, I thought it would be good for maybe me to share with you because I've had a little bit more time to reflect on this question for myself as I've been preparing to talk to you guys today. Um, I thought it might be good for me to maybe share a few of my default things that came out or how I define religion. Because I think that uh, many of us, for many of us, what you're going to see on the screen, my defaults, a lot of you probably share these with me as well. So there's probably some common denominators here. So uh, when Pastor Seth answers the question, what is religion? Let me just share with you kind of what I think. Now, the first thing I think about religion is the first word that comes to mind is the idea of rituals. Anybody with me? Think about religion, like rituals, right? What do I mean by rituals? Well, I'm giving you the definition here. <laughs> They're repeated acts prescribed by God, or depending on what religious system that you buy into, maybe prescribed by the gods, or prescribed by the, the ambiguous and amorphous force that governs the universe and might be considered the ground of all being. Nevertheless, regardless of who you're sort of worshiping, the rituals are the repeated acts that are prescribed by God or the gods or that force, and they are to be performed to appease or to please this God. So again, we have repeated acts. This is the idea of what pleases God the most. If I can just find out what it is that God wants for me in my life, if I can just do that in a repeated manner, then maybe, just maybe, I'll placate this deity, I'll placate this God, and, and in some way, shape, or form, I will come into a connected and vibrant relationship with him. I will know who he is. I will know what's expected of me. And I will be then able to live the good life that I long for. Now, an example of something like rituals would be um, if you've ever had or ever heard of anybody having those Native American like dream net catchers that you put up on the corner of your bedpost at night. And so what are those things, what are those things doing? Well, what is that but just this ritual that's rooted in a belief system that says, man, if I don't want to have nightmares at night, if I want something supernatural to filter out all the negative energy that would cause me to cause my dreams to go from pleasant, happy, good dreams to nightmares, well, then I need to do something. And I need to do this in perpetuity. I need to continue to repeat this act in order to be properly oriented to the divine in the universe, but also to live the good life. So when I think about religion, first thing that comes into my mind is the idea of ritual, things that I do over and over again. Another thing that I started thinking about was recitations. I'm going with the R theme, okay? I'm going with the R. It's alliterative. So recitations, what do I mean by that? Well, reciting something over and over. So if rituals are the things that I do repeatedly, recitations are the things that I say repeatedly. So recitations are professing or believing the right truths. If you've ever heard of things like doctrine 
or dogma or theology or belief systems. All of these are ideas of being able to profess, believe the right things about God, and then maybe he'll be pleased with me and I'll live a good life, or say the right things about God and all those things will come true or come to pass. It is saying the right things. Now, example, an example of this, many of you are probably, would probably feel this, if you grew up Catholic, or maybe you're still Catholic, or you're post-Catholic, or whatever adjective that you want to put in front of Catholic right now, I don't care. If you, if you have experience in the Catholic Church, you know that one of the ways when you sin, one of the things you kind of got to do is you got to go to the priest, you got to confess your sins to the priest, and in many cases, the priest will demand that in order to be absolved of your sins, you need to say, Hail Mary's however many number of them, or our fathers. In Catholic theology, there's, uh, folks are uh, encouraged to pray the rosary continually, these type of things. This is the idea of recitations, repeating and reciting the right truths and saying them over and over again, that somehow that might please God and give us the good life. And then lastly, I just think about this. I think of roadmaps. So this would be outlining the way to heaven, that religion ultimately is about outlining the way to heaven and eternal bliss. How do I get to nirvana? How do I get to that place that I know I'm supposed to be? What is the pathway to navigate through this life that drops me off at the destination where, again, I'm properly related for all eternity to God, and I'm enjoying the benefits of the blissful life of heaven? Now, does anyone share some of these things with me? Anyone would just naturally kind of define or characterize religion in this way? Now, I, I think for me, when I started thinking about a lot of these R's, I also, it just kind of dawned on me that there is sort of like a, an idea or a word that lies underneath these three things that I think informs or is at the bedrock of what I assume religion to be. Is it the bedrock? So if rituals are about doing the right things over and over and over again, if recitations are about saying the right things over and over and over again, if roadmaps are about living the right kind of life and entering into eternal bliss, man, it dawned on me that I think what lies underneath all of this, what is at the core of at least my definition of religion is this word, the rules. That ultimately, at the end of the day, when I think about religion, I immediately think about following the rules, meticulously following the rules. Now, whether you grew up in a religious environment or not, my guess is that your list is not altogether dissimilar from mine. In fact, I think this is kind of a general human nature kind of problem. I think all our perspectives, if we root it down at the end of the day, come to this idea where religion, what erupts within us is, I got to follow the rules. To follow the rules to please God and follow the rules to live the good life. In fact, I think this is so common to us as human beings. I decided in preparation for today to do a Google search. And in the search menu, in that field, I typed in the phrase, religion and the rules. Religion and the rules. Now, what I got returned to me by good old Google was nothing short of fascinating, hit after hit after hit. You ought to do the Google search after you go home today. It's, it's unbelievable. It's really illuminating and eye-opening. But uh, suffice it to say, there was one particular article, one particular hit that I came across that I thought did a phenomenal job of really summarizing or encapsulating all the rest of the stuff that was being thrown out there on the old interwebs. And this is actually an article that was written by a guy named David Grace. You probably don't know him. I didn't know him either. But David Grace is a uh, University of California Berkeley law professor, graduate of that same institution as well. And David Grace, what he writes, when he wrote, he wrote on a kind of share your ideas forum called medium.com. And I think this is fascinating. Look at what David Grace says. And I think this summarizes our understanding of religion and the rules. He says, religions are invented belief systems that express their members' fundamental ideas about what are the right and wrong ways to do things like, say it with me, please God. Also to operate a government, also to organize an economy. Uh, they are emotional, subjective collections of rules that somebody invented about what is right and what is wrong, what is fair and what is unfair, what is moral and what is immoral. Those subjective rules were made up as first principles, some religions are belief systems that pretend to answer the question, what do I have to do? 
What must I do to please God? I mean, I, I think this article here, what he has to say here, articulates a lot of assumptions that we all carry with us about religion and the rules. And what I want you to notice is some of the repeated ideas in David Grace's article. Look at some of the repeated ideas. First, that religion is invented. It's invented. It's made up. It's this idea that we as human beings, we want to please whatever divinity we have constructed in our minds or believe in, but ultimately at the end of the day, it's really all about us buckling up and exerting some more moral effort to follow the rules that we assume or think, maybe misguidedly according to David Grace, would please God and give us the good life. Notice what else gets repeated, that religion is emotional. It's subjective that religion isn't actually about objective, objective truths that God would hand down to people, that it's kind of all made up in our minds. But the, here's the thing. What David Grace takes us to, the one thing that repeats here that I think is a very illuminating for a lot of us is that he repeats, he says that ultimately, religion is about the rules, the rules. And specifically, he says that religions are rules, again, that pretend to answer the question, what must I do to please God? And notice the assumption behind what David Grace says here. The assumption is that God's default is to be unpleasable or less than pleased. And so if one were to meticulously follow the rules that God prescribes, if we were able to somehow satisfy him or placate him, that that person would be rewarded with eternal life. Now, I think when we acknowledge, if we just admit for a second that a lot of us hold these assumptions, I think it actually better equips us to understand the reactions that we have when we come across the rules or when we have these reactions in religious environments. You see, for some of us, because of the pain that maybe we've experienced in our past with things that we would identify as religion or objects or people or experiences or places that we would identify as religious, some of us are dealing with so much of that pain that we think the solution to religion and the rules is actually to throw off religion altogether, that there should be no rules, that freedom looks like not having any requirements on my life. Others of us are at the very opposite end of this hypothetical spectrum. We're the ones who are so anxiety-filled and anxiety-ridden about keeping the rules that we amp it up and we strive with greater rigidity and greater strictness to try to please God with our efforts. And I think many of us could probably identify ourselves as somewhere in between that. But I think at the end of the day, most of us, if not all of us, can we just admit that we're just confused, right? that we're really just confused about what we think with regards to the rules and what it would mean to please God and live the good life. And listen, as we wrestle with some of these deep, very profound, and ultimately, guys, really relevant for our lives kind of questions, we will discover here in Matthew 5, 17 through 20, that Jesus does not leave us without a very clear statement as to his perspective on the rules and their connection to religion. And I think what we're gonna find here is that Jesus will be confronting a lot of the broken and the flawed assumptions about religion and the rules that so many of us possess. So Matthew chapter five, you should already be there. I've given you 18 minutes. Let's take a look at what Jesus has to say. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law, <laughs> the rules, or the prophets. I have, come, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, unless heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands if that person were to teach others accordingly or to do the same, that person is gonna be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, this, this one's heavy, unless your righteousness surpasses 
that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. All right, for starters, I think when we all read this at first brush or our first pass-through, I think many of us can be easily startled, right, or struck by a Jesus here that appears to be like really pro-rules, doesn't he? He appears to be really pro-religion. I mean, Jesus says right off the top, hey guys, don't get the wrong idea about what I've come to do. Don't think that I've come to get rid of the, and we'll interpret the idea of law as the rules or the instructions or what must I do to please God. He says, I haven't come to do away with that. He says, I've not come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. Now, as we start to kind of wrestle with this a little bit, I think it would be important for us to take a look quickly and define or get a better understanding of what Jesus means by the law or the prophets here, the law or the prophets. Now, notice, even in our English translations of the Bible, the word law and the word prophets is capitalized. It's a proper name. And so when Jesus says the words law and prophets, he's actually referring to something very specific. Now, the law and the prophets were actually the two different portions or the two different sections of the Hebrew Bible, of the Bible of the Jewish people. The Hebrew Bible is what Christians call their Old Testament. And that is like the left or the beginning three quarters of the Bible that we hold in our hands today. And so here's what you got to get is the law and the prophets are actually a summary statement of the entire Old Testament. And the law and the prophets, actually the Old Testament was not necessarily just a bunch of rules that were cast or listed in propositional format. The law and the prophets is actually a narrative, okay? The law and the prophets is a story. It's fundamentally, first and foremost, a story. And it's a story that recounts the interaction between God and his covenant people, the Jewish people, or the people of Israel. Now, what's interesting is, is going to the law and the prophets here, though these books recount the story of that narrative history between God and his people, we find actually quite throughout the law and the prophets that there are indeed a host of religious commandments, words like statutes, rules, laws, instruction, codes of conduct are found throughout the law and the prophets are found scattered throughout this otherwise narrative story of the relationship between God and his people. And so to put, to put it very simply, the books of the law and the prophets, the books of the Old Testament were absolutely littered with the rules. And the Jewish people considered these rules to be authoritative for their life with God. They believed these rules to be binding for themselves in that relationship. Now, it would be pretty difficult for us to overemphasize the vast importance that the law, that the law and the rules had for the Jewish people of Jesus' day. You see, for the Jewish people of Jesus' day, obeying the commandments meticulously was tantamount to experiencing salvation and blessing and a life with God. So in other words, if you were a Jewish person in Jesus' day and you wanted to experience the good life, the life that God intended, if you wanted to experience the blessed or the happy life, to use the language that Jesus has already used earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, you would keep the commandments, all of them, rigidly and meticulously. This was what life was all about. Now, we could literally open up our Old Testament at random, like pick a page if you want. You could open up your Old Testament at random and you could find this principle or this ideology at work anywhere. But uh, there's one specific spot in Leviticus 18, four through five, where this idea is very concentrated and it was an often quoted, often repeated uh, a verse for the Jewish rabbis of Jesus's day. So God says to the prophet Moses in Leviticus 18, listen, Israel, Jewish people, you must obey my laws. You have to be careful to follow my decrees. He says, I'm the Lord your God. He says, keep my decrees and laws for the person who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. Now to tease this out a little bit more in a paraphrase, I'm gonna give you for verse five, the Seftonkar version of the Old Testament, which is pretty much worthless, but nevertheless, verse five is saying the person who performs the commandments, the person who remains faithful to following them, that person will find true life. They will find the life that God intended. Now, listen, if you can get this in your mind, 
if you can adopt this very Jewish way of thinking, you will discover that what Jesus continues to say in this introductory section puts him right smack dab in the middle of the prevailing theological thought of the Jewish people of his day. He moves on in verse 18 and he says, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear. In other words, until the creation like implodes in on itself and blows up and it's all dead and gone. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Until everything is accomplished. So heaven and earth are gonna go away before the smallest letter and the least stroke of a pen is going to expire or be irrelevant or insignificant from the Old Testament law. Now, I, find, I found this fascinating. As I did a little bit of work uh, this week in this passage in the original language, in the Greek that lies behind this, I thought it was very interesting. This phrase, leak, uh, leak, leak, least stroke of a pen, I'm getting tongue-tied, least stroke of a pen was fascinating to me. Now, I love going back in the original language because I feel like you can draw out some significant ideas that are found there. I'm not necessarily very good at it, but I wanted to share this one with you. So if you don't mind, would you just... For the next minute or two, can you allow me to engage in just a quick word nerdery? Just a little word nerdery, okay? All right, so check this out. The phrase, least stroke of a pen, in our English translations, back in the Greek in which this was originally written, in the Greek, it is only one word. One word. I thought that was interesting. One word. And the word, ready? This is going to blow your mind. The word that lies behind that is the Greek word for Horn. Horn, You're like what? Like a trombone or something like that? Like not the smallest letter, not the least, not the trombone or what? Like what's going on here? Well, I, I find this fascinating. So actually the, the idea of the horn is traced back into, so Jesus, um, although Matthew was written in Greek, Jesus likely spoke these words in a language called Aramaic. And Aramaic is a very close cognate. It's like a close cousin language to the Hebrew language which is the language that the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, was written in. And so horn actually refers to a feature of the, alphabet, of the Hebrew and Aramaic alphabet that I want to introduce you to. I want to show you this. Watch this. In Hebrew, I want to introduce you to two letters in the Hebrew alphabet, okay? So the one on the left here is kind of where we get our R sound in English. It's the letter resh. Everybody say, hi, resh. Hi, resh. Yeah, he thinks you're pretty cool. So this is, this is Resh on the left, okay? And then what I want to show you here on the right, this is my friend Dalit, which is where we get our D sound. So we got Resh and Dalit, two letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Now let me ask you a question. What is the difference between a Resh and a Dalit? Can you see it? <laughs> I'm glad because a 41-year-old man like me, I couldn't see it at first, right? Like, look at this. The only difference between a resh and a dalit is this little guy right here. That's called a horn. It's the horn of the letter, like the horn of a crown. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? And back in verse 17, Jesus has said all of it from cover to cover, the entire law and the prophets, the whole Old Testament is authoritative and binding, Jesus says, for my followers. So he's gotten the big picture, and then in verse 18, Jesus drills down to the smallest little detail. And he says, yeah, that, that horn that distinguishes a dalit from a resh, that's God's word. That's authoritative. That's binding for my followers. That even the smallest details that are found in the Old Testament are God-given. They're God-breathed. They're God's message to his people. And even as we move forward here in this passage, Jesus doesn't tame down the rhetoric. He dials it up that by the time he gets to verse 20, look at what he says here. He says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Two things to quickly note here. Who are these guys, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law? Who are these guys? Well, if you don't, if you've never heard about these guys, these guys were revered for their meticulous observance of the Old Testament law in Jesus' day. These guys were the religious leaders. They were the religious elite. 
They were the superstars, the all-stars, the gold standard in terms of what it meant to follow the religious rules that the Jewish people believed that God had divinely given them and prescribed for their life. These guys were the superstars. In fact, the Pharisees and the religious leaders here, they would have not only studied the entirety of the law and the prophets, they would have in many cases, listen, memorized every single word that was found within the books of the Old Testament. Listen, guys, there are over 304,000 words in the law and the prophets. These guys would have memorized them all, and they would have prided themselves by their meticulous, concerted observance of every single one of the commandments, and they would have mandated that their followers would do the exact same. So Jesus here, in effect... He says, man, hey guys, if you want to follow me, if you want to enter into the life of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that I'm bringing about, it means, we might think Jesus would say, that we have to go well beyond the righteousness that is taught and exhibited by the religious elite of his day. Now here, righteousness refers to a person's status in terms of their relationship with God. Righteousness is less about the good things that I do and more about whether or not I am properly related to God. Righteousness would have been understood to them as a character or a quality of a person, of a person who is properly related to God. And so Jesus says, your righteousness has to go beyond that. It has to surpass the religious rule-keeping of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Now, in our normal way of thinking, if we just take this at first brush, we might easily assume that in order to properly relate to God, Jesus is saying that a person, you gotta do better. Suck it up, buttercup. Pull up your bootstraps. Do more. Go beyond. Surpass the degrees of rule-keeping that are exhibited by your religious leaders. Now, I hope that this is doing for you what it did for me. I hope that this is sinking in a little bit for you. Let me ask you, if Jesus himself were standing right here on this stage, and if he were saying these things to you, to all of you in this room, what would your reaction be? What would your reaction be? Man, I know what my reaction would be. It would be the same reaction that Luke Skywalker had toward Yoda when Yoda demanded that he use the force to pull his X-wing fighter to lift it out of the bog in the Dagobah system. But it would. I'd say, Jesus, you want the impossible. Jesus, I know me. I know the depths of my soul and how pitifully sinful I am. There is no way that I can meet that mark, that bar. That bar is set way too high. Your criteria is beyond anything that is reasonable to ask any single person. There's no way. There's no way I can do that. Now listen, if you have ever thought those things or felt those things, you are welcome to enroll in the scores of people throughout human history who have rejected the Christian faith and who have rejected Jesus because they have perceived his expectations here in this passage to be so wildly unrealistic. But while many of us might feel this way, I think there is one single word that we have yet to explore that Jesus says in this passage back in verse 17 that I believe if we captured the heart of God and the heart of Jesus as he says it, would absolutely revolutionize our understanding of what Jesus is actually saying within this passage. To not allow our broken religion, our broken conceptions of religion, to make Jesus say something that he doesn't otherwise intend to say. This is a Jesus revolution, one word that appears here, and it is this word in verse 17, the word fulfill. Jesus says, I didn't come to do away with the rules. I came to fulfill them. Now, what might it mean for Jesus to fulfill, to fulfill the law and 
the prophets. Well, I have exhausted my Greek language um, expose here uh, with you this morning. So uh, I thought what I'd do is I'd maybe uh, express the heartbeat and the significance of this word fulfill through a little bit of an illustration. Okay, so let's just say in this illustration that uh, I decided that I wanted to learn a musical instrument, okay? And uh, let's just say I wanted to decide to learn how to play the guitar. Oh, imagine that. (laughs) Look at this. This little beautiful blue bell here going on. Okay. I don't say affectionate things to my wife like that, but that's too bad. So, all right. So let's just say for uh, illustration's sake, I want to learn how to play the guitar. All right. So if I'm learning how to play the guitar and I go to a music teacher who is very skilled at it, uh, what is the first thing that this music teacher is going to say that I should start practicing? What's the first thing? Chords. Okay. Actually, it's this. I've always wanted to play Sweet Child of Mine in front of a group of people. That's, that's fun. Little, uh, little comedic break, too. Anyway, back to the real deal, right? So what's, what's he going to ask me to do? Of course, he is going to ask me to play the rudiments. He's going to ask me to play the rules. He's going to take me to the scales. Yes, yes, there you go. So he's going to start, we're going to start with the scales. And then the next time when I say, I did it, teacher. I learned my rules. I learned my scales. What's he going to ask me to do next? Play your scales. And I'm going to ask him again, what should I do? He's going to say, play your scales. And I'm going to repeat these scales mercilessly, over and over and over again. After a while, I'll be honest with you, it gets to be real painstaking to play this over and over the rules. There are going to be many times where it's time for me to pick up my guitar and practice, and I'm not going to want to. There are going to be plenty of times where I'm going to want to quit because I'm so sick of playing these rules and these rudiments and these elementary pieces of guitar playing. But I tell you what starts to happen if I'm interacting with the rules right Eventually, the rules will give way Because as I learn the rules, as I learn the rudiments, I actually discover that the rules and the rudiments are not an end to themselves. The goal of guitar playing, if you were going to describe what it means to truly play music on a guitar, your end result, your end goal is not to play the scales. The scales are there to be the building blocks to train, to equip a people that are not mature in their guitar playing. The rules do not exist as an end to themselves. The rules point forward to a greater, more beautiful, joy-filled experience of the musical world that lies underneath and behind and surpasses the rules. This is to say, And this is to say that when we learn and are trained by the rules in a proper way, when we see them as situated rightly, that the rules are fulfilled when we experience the power of being able to be musicians and to play not just the scales, but the melody that's in our hearts. This is what it means for the rules to be fulfilled by something that is greater. It doesn't mean that when we encounter that musical world that lies behind the scales, that we just dispense with the scales or say they were always irrelevant. No, they have served their purpose and now they give way to something different entirely. So for Jesus, for Jesus Christ to fulfill the rules 
means that he reveals in himself what the rules pointed to and what they were there for all along. That yes, God did have a specific intent in giving the law and the prophets and all the commandments and the codes that were found therein to his people to train them, to equip them, to get their fingers oriented with the scales and entice them to look beyond the scales into the heart of God, to train and equip his people to something better, to a better righteousness that surpasses the scales, the law, the rudiments, not just in degree, but a righteousness that surpasses the law in kind that we're not just trying to amp up the degree of our adherence to the rules to be better than the Pharisees, to try to muster up within ourselves the power that we don't have in the first place to love and to please God, it won't work. Instead, Jesus says, your righteousness has to be of a different kind altogether to where God is developing within you a new kind of musical nature of the heart a heart that longs to love and please him rather than just follow the rules. And what's fascinating is this anticipation of a different kind of righteousness, of a transformation of the heart, was itself anticipated in the law and the prophets, in the Old Testament. Jeremiah, one of those prophets, says the days are coming, he speaks on behalf of God, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. This is a brand new kind of relationship that God is going to have with his people. Verse 32, it will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. They couldn't do it. They couldn't follow the laws and the decrees because they didn't have the corresponding transformation of the heart to want to love and obey and to please God. He says, though I was a husband to them, this is the covenant that I'm going to make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law, where? Say it. In their minds. Not just a surf like laws on a, on a, carved on a tablet of stone for us to try to check off all the boxes, but the heart of God that lies within the decrees that reveals who he is and his character and how much he loves us, that's going to be embedded and imprinted in our minds. It's going to be written, again, not on tablets of stone, but on our very hearts inscribed in the deepest parts of who we are. He says, I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, you should know the Lord. You should really do that. Because what? They're all going to know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Because I'm going to, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to forgive their wickedness. Yeah. I'm going to remember their sins no more. You see, when the new relationship between God and his people arrives, the rules aren't going to be external things that generate anxiety within us to see if we'll be good enough or powerful enough to keep it or to try to please God, to make him love us. Now, instead, the rules are going to be written on our hearts That Jeremiah says, who writes hundreds of years before Jesus dropped down on the face of the earth, God had already promised that he would embed and he would internalize his will, his way of living in the hearts of his people. That obedience to him would come now naturally from us because a fundamental interior disposition toward him had been radically transformed by him. That true religion, what pleases God the most is when a person doesn't try to muster up enough energy to get God to love them, but when a person discovers that God already does, and he has given everything, including his one-of-a-kind son, to give us the gift to transform the deepest parts of who we are, our fundamental motivations and desires can be absolutely revolutionized. And that is not something that is earned by following the rules. That is a gift. It's a gift from God himself through the person of Jesus Christ. The gift of God that would send Christ to the cross to die on behalf of our sins, 
to, as Paul says in Galatians, redeem us from the curse of the law. And for Jesus to be raised to new life so that those who would be united to him by simply putting our trust and allegiance in him could have a renovation of the heart from the inside out. That is a gift when we say yes to Jesus. And we see that God's ultimate goal, God's ultimate goal in all of this, again, isn't to play the scales. It's to become musicians, it's to become musicians to live the beautiful life that he longs us to live together in partnership with him. So I'm gonna invite the band up and they're gonna come up here and get ready to do their thing. (laughs) And so as we close, in light of this reality of the renovation of the heart that comes only when we place our trust in Jesus to where our fundamental desires are now changed to want to love and please a God who already we know loves us so dearly. What are some practical takeaways that we, can, that we can hang on to as we head into the rest of this series? Now listen, there could be a lot of things specifically that the spirit of God who works in our hearts is stirring up within us right now, some specifics for you in your life. But in general, and given that this isn't just an introduction, I just wanna offer you two things, just two things. Uh, number one, number one, later in the gospel of Matthew, Uh, Jesus will be approached by another religious leader, a lawyer, and that lawyer will ask him a question. He will say, good teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? What is the greatest commandment in the law? What's the big rule that trumps all the rest? And I love how Jesus responds. He says, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your (laughs) heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And then he says, the second is like it. You will love the things that God loves. You will, you will love the people that God's, God loves. You will love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. And again, this is fulfilled when we come to Christ. It's fulfilled when we love God and love people from the new transformed heart. And again, this does not take more moral effort exercised under your own power. This takes Jesus's power by his Holy Spirit at work in us to not only change us from the inside out, but to catalyze that new nature into action to serve and love other people. So if you take nothing else away from our conversation today, I want you to hear this. I I want you to hear this. No amount of righteousness or good works or stuff that you do will ever make you pleasable to God. None of it. But guys, here's the good news. That's not the kind of righteousness that God is looking for. He wants to give you this righteousness, this new heart as a gift He wants to give you everything that you need to live in proper relationship with him. And that comes by saying yes to Jesus, putting your faith in Christ. So if you're here today and you have never placed your faith in Christ, you are being being invited to embrace the greatest gift that God has ever offered to you. So please, receive it. Yield to who Christ is. Put your faith and your trust in him. And watch what God does with your heart to transform it. And watch what he will continue to do as you grow in that relationship and following Jesus. Just watch. And I would say this, if you are a Christ follower in this room, my challenge to you is also to say yes to whatever it is that Jesus is calling you to in the next step in your spiritual journey. Whatever that next step of obedience is, not out of a desire to earn his love, but from a place of knowing that you are loved, be challenged and encouraged to say yes to what Jesus is leading you to. The second thing is, in as much as I would love for you to say yes to Jesus and whatever that looks like in your life, I would also just invite you on behalf of our staff and leaders in our church, I would just invite you also to maybe just consider saying yes to this series, yes to the series. 
So again, this is an introductory part of the conversation today. We're going to be looking at the rest of what Jesus has to say in the remaining verses that have everything to do with some really challenging and like practical things that many of us or most of us are going to or have gone through in our lives. The remaining content of Jesus' sermon that we're going to cover is going to be difficult. It's going to be difficult, but I think it's going to be rewarding. But I want you to know that the principle of loving God and loving other people from the new transformed heart that Jesus gives us and enables us to act upon by the power of his Holy Spirit is going to be absolutely essential to navigating the specific things that Jesus wants to teach us throughout the rest of the series. So I'm just gonna ask you, would you, would you be willing to come back next week? Would you be willing to commit to this series? Would you be willing to lock into the series and have Jesus show you the various ways that the new heart can be operative in real life circumstances that we faced. And to reveal to us in a host in a host of settings how much Jesus himself longs to take our broken concepts of religion and the rules and to transform them from the inside out. Let's pray. Jesus, um, we just want to say thank you for the words that you spoke here in Matthew 5. We want to thank you that you have clarified for us that the rules were building blocks, but they were not ends to themselves. And Jesus, we want to thank you for being the true fulfillment of all that the law and the prophets themselves longed for, all that the disciplines and the rules and the rudiments were pointing to. Jesus, we know that you yourself obeyed the law perfectly. You were perfectly righteous. And Jesus, we know that your death was a death to sin and the curse of the law. And your resurrection is to the new life, to where you're able to give us the gift that we cannot manufacture or engineer within us on our own, the gift of a new heart and the gift of a new power working in us so that we can know your love most supremely and love those that you love in action most effectively. So Jesus, we confess that it's all because of you and we want to celebrate you and thank you and express our gratitude. And we wanna do that most especially by committing our hearts, committing ourselves to you and your agenda and your kingdom power and your kingdom culture at work in this world through your followers, through us. So Jesus, I'm asking that you would work in each of us, not only right now, but as we go from this place today, that you would challenge us afresh to respond to you, to say yes to you in every circumstance and everything that we're dealing with in life, to look to the true fulfillment of the law and the prophets, the promised one who died and rose for us. And so Jesus, help us to even now as together we sing praises about who you are, that you're the king of the world and that you have worked what we could not. You've given us rescue, a new life and a new heart. Help us from the very core of that new heart to sing and exalt in praise and adoration for who you are, what you have done, and what you're leading us to. Thank you, Jesus. And we pray this all in your name, that powerful name. Amen.